One, one thing that the Orbit application does is it generates a score for every community member that's called the love. Back in May, we decided to introduce materialized views inside of Postgres in order to basically do these calculations. So we would do them in SQL and then we would store the result in a materialized view. I thought it would be great. Um, it's very simple. Two or three months later, it turns out that the number one consumer of IO on our database is the generation of these materialized views. It worked quite well when we were ingesting one-tenth or one-hundredth of the activity, but it is certainly an approach that has not scaled. My name is Josh Jellick. I'm the co-founder and CTO at Orbit. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Josh Jellick took the Orbit model and created mission control for your community. All this and more on Code Story. Josh Jellick is originally from the U.S., but lives in Paris now. And because of this, he likes to take advantage and walk around to take in the sights. He lives close to an area with a park featuring gardens and lots of trees, and he goes there to clear his head, have a little bit of nature, and also to have walking meetings. Josh likes to stay active through running, cycling, and the aforementioned walking meetings. He's married with a 13-month-old daughter. He met his wife not in Paris or the U.S., but in Thailand. He jokes that his young daughter is growing up faster than his company. He avidly confirms that the food in Paris is amazing. The simple things are fantastic, and he frequents the patisserie for his favorite almond croissant. His family loves to host people when they come to town, so they can ensure they try some of the exquisite foods and strong flavors. At a prior company, as a developer advocate, Josh started using the Orbit model. He compared the model to being like the funnel for sales, except the Orbit model applies to community. After he left the company, he joined his now co-founder using the Orbit model in a consulting context. Then the aha moment occurred. What if we built a product to facilitate this? This is the creation story of Orbit. Orbit is mission control for your community. Our, our users and customers are community builders. They're people who are building a community on, out there on the internet, um, or sometimes off the internet, but they use tools like Slack, Discord, GitHub, Twitter. Orbit plugs into all of those different systems to try to give those community builders a universal sense of their community across all of the different sources. So instead of feel, having a community that feels fragmented because you have some activity on Discourse, some on GitHub, some on Twitter, Orbit tries to bring that together and give our, our users a complete picture of who their community members are. Is their community growing or shrinking? What kind of actions or steps could they be using? Uh, could they be trying to grow their community? We, we get to work with a lot of open source projects and companies uh, who are making tools for developers. Those are two of our you know, earliest customers, earliest types of customers and our favorite people to work with. And the way that I, I got into it uh, is I was a developer advocate 
working at Algolia for several years, and that's actually where I started to use this thing called the Orbit model, which we have in addition to Orbit the product, we also have this thing called the Orbit model, which is a really simple thing. It's, it's a bit like the funnel, where the funnel is a, mo a model for marketing and sales, but the Orbit is more of a model for community, rather than having a cone-shaped thing where everybody's you know flowing to the bottom and if someone falls out of the funnel, you don't care about them. Uh, in the Orbit model, you care about all of your community members. They're just, some of them are at the center and some of them are closer to the edges. And my co-founder Patrick and I, uh, after I left Algolia, I teamed up with him and we started to use the Orbit model with a bunch of different companies, more in just a consulting context to help them understand and visualize their community. And then we had this aha moment like, oh, what if we built a product that helped our, that helped people take the suggestions, the recommendations, the visual canvas that the Orbit model provides and turn that into a, an actual tool where people could see their community inside of that tool. So that was really the process um, being a developer advocate and realizing that there, were, there weren't tools out there for me or for my team. There weren't things that really helped me get a, a universal view of the community or know, know exactly what to do and becoming a consultant to help people do that and then ultimately you know, deciding to turn that into a product and build something that developer advocates and community managers everywhere can use to overcome a lot of the, the challenges of community building. Let's dive into the MVP. So tell me about that first product you built. How, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So the very first MVP, we built a Rails backend with a Next.js frontend. Uh, we had that for about three months. We decided to do that because we wanted to try out Next.js. We'd heard a lot of great things. We also knew that we were going to be building something that had a pretty serious data model to it. And I've used Rails for uh, off, off and on since 2008, 2009, so for about 10 years. Very, very familiar with the power that Rails gives developers at the model level, uh, complex domains, lots of tables, you know, Rails and Active Record are just so good at abstracting all of that. So we knew we wanted to use Rails at the kind of application and, and backend layer. We tried next.js on the front end, and it was really, really good. But what we found as we were iterating with that stack, it was a little bit slower than we wanted to iterate because we still had to change backend APIs and then have those reflected in next.js and we were changing the product so fast early on based on what we were learning for customers that we eventually went back to just a rails monolith like so the second mvp kind of what came after that we just took the back end code that we had and said we're going to go full rails we, we moved the templating and the front end stuff in inside of rails and that's kind of how the app is today so we it, I, I would kind of describe it as we over architected a little bit in the beginning and we actually returned to something a little bit simpler once we had more confidence we were building the right thing and so that we could continue or so we were able to iterate even faster than we had been. That's interesting. So you over-architected first and then simplified. I want to dig into that a little bit here in a second, but in that first MVP and maybe the second too, if you want to, if you want to double up your answer, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about what you're going to build in the short term, how you're going to approach it, what sort of technical debt you're going to take on. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make in, in a little more detail and how you coped with them. One of the decisions we we had to make was how much to you know prioritize the front end part of the experience as we were trying to learn about what customers really wanted so kind of what fidelity w did we want to build with in terms of the front end would we start off by having 
something really beautiful, really fast, feeling very polished, taking a little bit longer to build, but ultimately having maybe more wow effect on the visual side with these users? Or would we keep it a little bit more bare bones, pages that were a little bit less interactive? And we went back and forth on that a bit because we wanted our early users to really know that we were committed to giving them something really nice and really great to work with. But then we also spent more than a few cycles trying to iterate and, and just kind of tweak the design. And we learned that that wasn't really giving us the information generally about what customers really wanted at that level. They were like, oh, it's, you know, it's beautiful. This is really looking nicer. But we were, such at, we were still such an early phase where we needed more answers like, yes, I would use this feature. No, I wouldn't. Or I, I'll only use this feature if it does these other four things. You know, we said, wow, we, we should probably learn to iterate faster on the use cases and not try to put something so polished in front of our users. They don't mind if it looks a little bit rough. You know, there were a couple of trade-offs architecturally that went into that, like should we use Tailwind CSS because it's really easy, or should we build our own design system and then try to work from there? Well, ultimately, a lot of our choices just ended up gravitating toward what's the easiest thing to maintain right now and what lets us iterate the fastest. I liked it that you mentioned Tailwind. So I had Adam on the, the podcast a, a while back and uh, Adam Wazen to talk about Tailwind and building that. And it's a fantastic tool. Yeah, we, we've been really happy with it. Um, and it's allowed us to, to go fast and create components after the fact once we have them. I, I, what we found is tail, Tailwind uh, scales quite well using it you know in the beginning it feels like wow i'm using a lot of classes but then over time you just move those into partials rails and tailwind actually work quite well together and you can do a lot there so as you learn what is going to be a more consistent part of your ui you could just put it into a partial with some tailwind and use it anywhere you want and that's that's really most of the the architecture for our front end it's just it's that simple from that point let's say from the second mvp right where you simplified how did you progress the product from there and how did you mature it? And I think, you know, in context of that question, I'm looking for like, how you built your roadmap and decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build in orbit. Yeah, I'd say a lot of it was based on feedback that we were getting from two sources, a, a small set of design partners and then a wider community that we had started to create. Uh, I think it was on a Slack uh, group at that time. So we had, we had maybe five to 10 design partners. And then we had about a hundred people who we knew friends, former clients, people in the industry, developer advocates, um, some of our angel investors who, who themselves were developer tool founders. So we had a small group that we could go really deep with. And then we had a bigger group where we could take some concepts to the more general and see, Hey, you know, let's let question here what would you want to see on a profile page for your community member? Well, we can learn something from design partners who have a very specific sense of what that could look like. We can also just throw it out to the community for ideas and they say, oh, I want a, I want a, a button to watch what this person is doing, or I want an ability to send them, you know, swag or stickers, a t-shirt with one click. So they're all kind of novel ideas coming from the community and we gathered a lot of feedback there. But I think we also needed to have design partners who had very clear goals for our community program does this. These are the four or five things we're trying to accomplish this year. This is the kind of tool that we think could help us accomplish that. And we would we would do two to three hours a week with all of the design partners as a part of that process. Apollo was, was one of them, the GraphQL people. Give them a, a shout out because they were super helpful from early on 
in really helping us understand how Orbit could help the Apollo community um, and the Apollo DevRel Dev Experience team, you know, provide their members a better experience. So it's kind of the the, the general answer is going broad and deep at the same time to kind of make sure you're not getting too boxed into what design partners say, but you're also not just only taking suggestions from people that are just throwing them out there at a high level. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if it did that? It's like you're reading from the uh, list of people I've interviewed. So I had Matt DeBergulis from Apollo on the on the podcast last season. Super cool uh, tool and, and fantastic community. I'm glad you guys are, are hooked up and helping each other. Yeah, we love working with the... Uh with a team over there and they've been uh you know even even early on they had a lot of confidence in us that we were going to be able to build something useful for them and for the other for the other developer focused companies in the space and really our our roots were were very much in the developer um you know developer tools and open source now orbit serves different kind of communities that are that are not just developer focused but um in, in terms of really making sure what we had was going to work for developer tools and open source. They were, they were really helpful. Let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team and, and what did you look for in those people to indicate, okay, they're the winning horses to join you? When we went to build a team, we, we thought a lot about culture and values, not documenting them uh, ad nauseum or writing them down or trying to have an exact perspective, but just my, my co-founder and I started to think about what, what are the characteristics of the, the people that we think would be interested in joining this mission and who we think we'd have you know a fun and good working relationship together. And one th- it, it came down to a, a few things that are still some values we have today. Um, action-oriented is, is one, especially as we were just starting out, two people looking to become three and then three looking to become five and then up to 10. You know, we, we really needed and, and wanted people who wanted to jump in, roll up their sleeves, get dirty, not too opinionated about a specific task or a specific thing that they wanted to work on, but just kind of generally willing to do what it takes to get the company off the ground. Because at that phase, when we're that small, we don't, things are changing all the time, trying to find product market fit. And so we, we really looked for people who were confident enough in their engineering skills to be able to build something fast, to understand the difference between you know, I'm building this for the long part, this is going to become a part of our architecture, or this is an experiment, so we're going to build it in a different way that takes a lot less time. I think that kind of sense uh, and, and sensibility that engineers have if they've had the opportunity to work on startups or some of their own projects, products before at the early stages is very, very valuable. Because you don't want to bring someone in who's going to treat everything as architecture from the beginning and then spend a lot of time in it and be very upset when it gets thrown away. Uh, so we look for people who are open-minded about uh, that and had some experience. Um, I'd also say the passion for the community space and for the product that we were building was also just uh, just such a big thing. There were some people from our own community that ended up joining the team early on, and they did just because they they love the idea of serving community builders uh, who are our customers, and they they love the idea of getting to. Build a, build a tool that doesn't exist yet. Like this idea of um, uh, mission control for the community or the community operating system, it's kind of a new category that's just um, emerging as we're building it. So a lot of the people were just excited from a product and engineering standpoint that this is a new thing. Uh, it's gonna require figuring out a lot of, you know, a lot of how it's gonna work, a lot of decisions. 
I think we were able to attract some people in the beginning who wanted a lot of a lot of challenge in terms of like we we don't know exactly where this is going to go, but we're going to have to figure it out along the way. I like how you said, you know, looking for people that are okay with essentially, you know, throwing away what they've built and starting over kind of. I think that's really important because you're building something to get things started, but you're going to end up either having to rewrite or scrap things and you can't take it personally. That's, that's hard. That's hard for engineers. It is. Yeah. And I, I would say we, we try to select for people who wouldn't say they, they don't have a big ego, but who are aware of the times when ego might factor into their conversations or the work that they're doing or their relationships with their coworkers and try to hire people who are self-aware, but then also, you know, be coaching within the organization because anytime you have a lot of smart people working on something, they're all going to have a lot of ideas and a lot of them and opinions and a lot of them will be valid. But uh, we, we try to invest a lot in coaching and mentoring the team so that we can, you know, uh, build amazing things and, and give feedback to each other, help each other improve, but with, without a lot of tension, I would say, or too much. Well, let's switch to scalability. So did you build this in the beginning to scale efficiently, essentially from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow? So I, I'd say we're, we're in the middle. I think that... Um, the, the product and our user base has grown quite quickly and we didn't do anything prematurely on the scaling side. So we set up, we run on Heroku, we use Postgres. We don't have a Postgres setup where we've introduced, you know, multiple masters or uh, partitioning or we're kind of approaching those decisions in our sort of infrastructure roadmap in the next three to six months probably. But we didn't do any of that premature stuff in advance. We certainly did not set up a Kubernetes cluster. You know, we didn't go with microservices uh, up front, assuming that we were going to need to, you know, chunk things into services. We just said, let's pick the stack that's very reliable and trusted and easy and great to iterate with and not, not try to overscale on any of the parts. So what we have today is, is very much what most people would expect to see this kind of uh, Rails and Heroku uh, stack and that's what we have. So we really we haven't done anything as far as premature optimization there. So we're spending about 10% of our development sprints, I would say, on improving the performance of the application, on making sure that everything from a database perspective continues to run smooth while looking ahead next three to six months on, on that. But it's mostly the the data. We we uh, we don't have too many moving parts as far as our, our overall solution today that we that we have to look at scaling. So I think we're, we'll kind of approach it as we get there. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Very proud of the, the team, um, our engineers, our product managers, our product designer, everyone on the, the community and the developer relations side. Uh, it's really been a team effort to build the product uh, because the, the, getting the feedback from our customers comes from everyone. And that's really the, the main thing that we use to drive what we build. So I'm, I'm really proud of the, the team for remaining community and customer centric, even as more and more requirements have come in, even as um, you know, we, we can see more in the roadmap, all the stuff that we're excited to build, but we, we still try to really stay grounded in, in what our users and our community are bringing to us. Proud of the team for growing. We've grown from three to 25 people this year uh, since January. And so 
really excited that we've been able to do that and proud of the team for just figuring things out as we go. And I would say being being patient with some of the things that we've needed to get into place and helping, you know, really stepping up and solving problems even when it's not something that everybody was able to see yet or that got assigned out. So really love the, the autonomy and just stepping up the team has, has done. And from a code base and technology perspective, uh, I'm also very proud of how well we've sticked to our testing strategy. We have almost 4,000 RSpec tests. We're pretty faithful about, about testing in general. Uh, as a result, we've only had a few situations where major bugs have entered into production. Our uptime this year has been very, very good. We fix performance issues, usually within a day or two of noticing them, and sometimes we can also catch those in development. So I'm proud of that we've built a testing culture the last thing I'm proud of is that we've been able to mentor junior developers, even on a team that's trying to move fast and is very new. Uh, we have two or three junior developers on the team, and we've seen amazing strides in what they've been able to do. We have one junior developer who had never used Ruby and Rails before, had only used JavaScript. Uh, and after six months, she's shipping features, doing pull, uh, pull request reviews, you know, helping other developers on the team, documenting a lot of our stack and how to um, get onboarded. And it's just really gratifying and really cool to see that we're able to have developers on the team with multiple skill levels and still get work done while we're helping those, those other developers level up. So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. One mistake that we made, and this this will be a little bit technical, but I think that's that's probably okay. That's good. <laughs> that's good. It's better than okay. It's good. Um, yeah, we're gonna talk some little bit of database stuff here. One one thing that the Orbit application does is it generates a score for every community member that's called the love. And this is the the just our word for how engaged is this member in the community. And we, just, we try to assign a score, it's not perfect, can't exactly quantify love into a decimal, but we create a score so that users at a glance can see, oh, this is one of my most engaged members or, or this, is, this is not. And so we, we do this in the background as Orbit is receiving ac community activities. And today we receive over 700,000 a day. That's things that community members are doing in our users community you know, that represent some kind of engagement. And we have to run some, some background processing on all of those activities that come in in order to be able to update this score. And back in May, we decided to introduce materialized views inside of Postgres in order to basically do these calculations. So we'd do them in SQL and then we would store the result in a materialized view and then we could read from that view during queries. It was the first time we had introduced views or materialized views into the application. I am fully responsible. It was my idea. I thought it would be great. Um, it's very simple. Two or three months later, it turns out that the number one consumer of I.O. on our database is the generation of these materialized views that we do on a uh, rolling basis. Essentially, we have a sidekick job or a cron that just recalculates these. It worked quite well when we were ingesting one tenth or one hundredth of the activities that we're doing that we were are doing today. But it is certainly an approach that has not scaled. And our engineering team and myself right now, we are going back and re-architecting that to just use tables instead of materialized views. It's you know been one of the things that we as an engineering team you know look back on and laugh a little bit because 
is a great example of, well, it worked at the time, but if we had, if we had done kind of a scalability analysis and said, is this going to scale at 10x or 100x? I think we all, all would have said, no, maybe we should, you know, find a different way before we ship this. <laughs> but that was a, a bit of a, a mistake. And we have a process now to ask that question. To, so we've, I think we learned something. Uh, I have been in that exact same position, and we just finished um, refactoring all of our materialized views at variable. So I'm right there with you. Oh, that's great. Uh, we're not alone. <laughs> no, no. It, you know, it, it does work. It does work, and it's quick, and it's uh, materialized views are great at small scale. And then as soon as you hit scale, uh, you, you run into problems. So, man, I, I feel you. I totally feel you there. <laughs> Well, what does the future look like for Orbit, the product, and for your team? We're adding a lot to the product in two directions these days. One, the number of integrations that we support, and then also how much value that we can provide to our users for, uh, for helping them build the community. And essentially, how, much, how many workflows can Orbit actually support the community builders do? A lot of our efforts are, go are, are going in those two directions, and the integrations direction is really interesting because from a technical side right now, we're trying to figure out how are we going to support the next 20 integrations, the next 100 integrations, how does the architecture change? Today we have five, five major integrations. We have those inside of our main code base. It works just fine. 25 integrations inside of the main code base might start to feel like a lot and actually you know, have some real impact on our development velocity or just the overall health of the code base. So one thing we're doing on the team side is starting to create teams inside of the engineering organization to go after and solve specific problems and challenges like that. Like maybe, you know, we'll have a team in the next year, take a look at how we're, how we're building integrations and try to form a new perspective or move those integrations outside of the code base, do something different there, something that allows us to scale up to 100 or more integrations in the future without having to worry about any impacts on the main runtime, main code base. And so we're, we're experimenting a lot on the design of our teams. And that's been, been pretty interesting because for a while it was totally flat. We didn't have engineering managers or tech leads. We just had developers. Um, and, and me as the CTO giving some guidance, that doesn't scale too far. We have 15 full-time full contributors on the app today, and that's about two teams that we've created there. And each team has what we call an engineering organizer who is responsible for um, the building with the right people, making sure that the right developers are working on the right things. We have a tech lead who's responsible for making sure we're building it in the right way. And then we have a product manager on the team who's responsible for building the, the right thing. These three people, along with five to six engineers, form the engineering teams that we have today. And it's been cool to see our velocity go up as we've actually moved to something that's a little bit more structured. But that's the phase that the really the phase that we're in. We're kind of designing and building the organization as we build the product. And so I think we'll be innovating in, in both directions quite a bit in the next year. What switch to you, Josh? Who influences the way that you work? You know, I'm a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person you look up to and why. One of my favorite CTOs or ex-CTO now, I guess, is Jason Warner from GitHub. Um, Jason is, we're very lucky to count Jason uh, amongst our angels at Orbit. Got to, got to know him early on and, you know, I was very excited about our, our vision to help it, you know, 
make it easier to build developer communities. Jason was a VP engineering at Heroku and then the CTO at GitHub. What I love about Jason is that he's always sharing his perspective on engineering leadership. Uh, it can be on his Twitter. Uh, there's also um, a podcast he does now, and it's really very tactical solutions to, or a tactical perspective on challenges that startups face, like what should be the role of the CTO? What should be the role of the VP Eng? When is someone ready to be a director of engineering? What, what is the difference there? What is it? What does the system look like uh, for a Series A or a Series B or a bigger company that's further along? So I, I, I love that Jason just shares a ton of his thinking, and it's not just high level. It's, it's actually very practical stuff that you feel like you, you need to know kind of right at that time. So big fan of Jason there, and I think on the developer community side, um, someone who's who's influenced me quite a bit is James Tamplin, the CEO and co-founder of Firebase. You know, one of the earliest examples that I saw of building developer community well was the the early Firebase you know, back in I think 2012, and that that really inspired me generally to get more involved in open source and developer community, and that kind of helped bring me to where I am today. Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently, or where would you consider taking a different approach? One thing we would have done differently was be a little bit more use case focused and probably try to prioritize product design and product management thinking earlier on. For a while, for about a year and a half, we were just three people, uh, two engineers and my co-founders more on the, the commercial side. We didn't have a very strong product management, product design mindset. And the result of that ended up being that we did build a lot of features that didn't end up being the right ones. And we weren't always sure if what we were building was the, the right thing. I, I would describe it as the kind of classic case where you have engineers in charge of the product roadmap and they're kind of biased because they're very close to the technology so they can really see what it's capable of, but they're not exactly sure if that's going to be the thing that users want. We had to learn and grow up as an organization in 2021 a little bit, naturally to start asking more questions and when we, uh, you know, about what we had built, about if it was truly something that users wanted. And it was, it was good. It was hard to, to look at some of the things we'd built and say, you know, this was an interesting idea, but it's really not something that we need to carry with us in the future because users might not understand it very well or it's not something that's, that's very useful for them. So to summarize it, I, I would say, you know, something I would have done differently would be to bring in either on the team or just as mentors at, or at, and advisors in a stronger way, helping us really think as engineers, what are we building and why and how are we prioritizing it? Um, and so that some of those iterations and some of what we, we ended up with and had to change in the future, we could have sort of gone directly to the right solution versus having to try you know, three or four different attempts to do it. Well, Josh, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? This young entrepreneur, they've built the next big thing. I think my my next advice right at that moment is seek help and seek a lot of opinions and input from people who are who have been at the next stage that you're trying to go to. 
So if this young entrepreneur has built the next big thing and it's just right there on his laptop, he hasn't really showed, or he or she hasn't really showed many people, I would say, oh, the next thing that you need to do is, you know, get some feedback on this, um, take a look, maybe talk to some other people who have built um, tools in this space or who would be potentially your customers. And now if this, if this young entrepreneur had built the next big thing and maybe they had already raised their seed round, already have a few customers and building a team, my advice would be talk to people who've done their Series A, ask them the questions about what that period was in between, try to get a sense because it's all gonna happen very quickly. And the best thing that you can do is you know, trying to think six months or 12 months ahead and, and trying to really get a lot of other opinions into the mix so that you, you don't just kind of end up in an echo chamber in your own head. Oh, what, what should we do next? What am I going to do? What's the world going to look like in six months or 12 months? You can just find someone who's gone through those stages of, of that journey before and ask them. And every time I've done that, I've it's always been really helpful for me, whether it's talking to other founders who are further along or just subject matter experts in any kind of capacity. You know, people love to give their time often, at least I've I've found when they know something about a topic. So my advice for this young entrepreneur would would be, you know, ask for help and don't be shy to seek advice from experts. And, you know, if uh, uh, be bold, you know, if uh, try to get, you know, be, be so bold, try to get one time a day, at least, you know, someone tells you no. Uh, if, if, if everyone's always telling you yes, well, you probably don't know the limit of what you could be asking. That's great advice. Well, Josh, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Orbit. Thanks for having me, Noah. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.